Open your Bibles this morning to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, where I'll remind you of a verse that I emphasized last Lord's Day, and I want to add two verses to it. This morning already, we have read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, and we realized from that passage that we were by nature the children of disobedience. We were by nature and by our own practice the children of wrath, even as others. It's important for us to remember that there are only two kinds of people on planet Earth. There are the sons of God, and there are the sons of the devil. There are the children of disobedience, and there are the children of light. There are the children of wrath, and there are the children of mercy. God has made vessels of mercy, and He has made vessels of wrath. Romans 9, 22-24 tells us that. He's made one vessel unto honor. How great is the honor? A son of God. Amen. He's made other vessels unto dishonor. How great is the dishonor? Sons of the devil, the rebel from heaven. How great is the difference between their destinations? Heaven and hell. One category is reserved in chains unto everlasting punishment and the mist of the blackness of darkness forever. The other, eternal heaven and all spiritual blessings in heavenly places that Paul, when he tries to describe it, loses the ability of language to describe something that we have not seen nor can we imagine. He simply says, I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love Him. Wow! If the eye, the ear, and the heart can't even fathom it, how great it must be. God has prepared things for them that love Him. And we love Him because He first loved us. Make no doubt about it. It is not because we are better than the children of wrath that we are the sons of God. It is because God, in His great grace, set His love upon us and made us His sons. And brethren, the things He hath prepared for us, He's going to say this to us one day. The Lord Jesus Christ said in Matthew chapter 25 and verse 34... These are the words we're going to hear. Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Bless His glorious name. There are two kinds of people on earth, the sons of God and the sons of the devil. The Apostle Paul would say in Romans 9.21, Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor. Does he have that power? Indeed he does. Does he have that authority? Truly he does. Does he have that right and privilege as the creator God of heaven and earth against whom we have sinned in a most heinous manner 
in the Garden of Eden, and ever since that day, he has the power. There's two kinds of people on earth today, and you are the sons of God. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you love his appearing, if you love his word, and you love each other in this assembly, as I have spent five sermons preaching to you about there being no fine line between these two different categories of men, you are the sons of God this morning, and it's time for us to rejoice, review, and study, and remember all the things he's done for us. Let's start in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew Him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when He shall appear, we shall be like Him. For we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. That says everything I want to say to you today. It says, behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. It says the world doesn't know us any better than it knew him. It says you don't know what you're going to look like in the future. Because we want to talk about the final phase of adoption as well. And it also says that if we got a hold of this doctrine, it would change our lives. Right. And every man that hath this hope in him, that is the patient expectation and the patient waiting for the final manifestation of the sons of God. If you ever fully laid hold of that hope, it would change your life even more than it's been changed. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. The greater knowledge that you have that you are a son of God and what is coming in the future will make you to want to be like your heavenly Father even more. You will want to be pure, which is to be holy, as he is pure and holy. And so we want to get all those lessons today as we consider various things the Bible has to say about being the sons of God. Yes, it will end best tonight. It ends best when I tell you what's in store for the sons of God. It ends best when I tell you and show you from Romans chapter 8 that the whole creation, the universe, is moving toward an event and you are an important part of that event. Do you know what your role is going to be? You're going to be declared to be the sons of God before the whole universe. We have an inheritance reserved in heaven for us, incorruptible, undefiled, and it fadeth not away. You know, some fathers' promises fade away. They make promises and don't perform them. Our Father in heaven, His promises don't fade away. Behold what manner of love. The world doesn't know us because it didn't know Him. Beloved, we're brothers and sisters together in the family of God. We don't know exactly what we're going to look like because we haven't seen it yet. It hasn't appeared yet, but we're going to look like Him because we are going to be brothers to Him, heirs and joint heirs 
with Jesus Christ of God. And if you really got a hold of this hope, and if you hear me this day, you'll purify your life. And the most important thing will be to please your Father in heaven. Turn back in your Bibles all the way to Genesis chapter 6. Let's remind ourselves of how great this subject is and that at all times there were only two kinds of men on earth. Genesis chapter 6. Here's what I read in the first few verses. And it came to pass when men began to multiply in the face of the earth and daughters were born unto them that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man for that he also is flesh. Yet his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men, which were of old, men of renown. And God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, and it repented the Lord that he had made man in the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. I want you to notice here the main point. I'm not preaching through Genesis 6, but I want you to notice there were only two kinds of men in the days of Noah. The sons of God and the daughters of men. These are not angels. Angels did not come down and have sex with women. That is such a hilarious joke that little people who've never studied their Bibles come to such ridiculous science fiction ideas about the Bible. That's somebody that's watched too much of Star Wars or too much of some other science fiction from Hollywood. The sons of God are those that were worshiping and obeying God and calling upon the name of the Lord. They're mentioned in chapter 4 and verse 26 where Eve said, God hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel. She didn't say God's appointed me another seed like Cain. She said God's appointed me another seed like Abel. Whom Cain slew. His name was Seth. And to Seth, to him also there was born a son, and he called his name Enos. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. Men began to call upon the name of the Lord, and they were the sons of God. Noah was one of them. But the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they were seduced by the lewd, lascivious, unchaste, immodest, pagan daughters of Cain. And his descendants. And they intermarried, which throughout the whole Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, is one of the greatest and most foolish sins, mistakes, that a person can make, is to marry outside the Lord. And the sons of God saw all these beautiful women, and rather than submitting their marital desires to the Word of God, or to God Himself, they chose of those women all that they wanted. And they married them. But my point is, there were two kinds of people. The sons of God and the daughters of men. The sons of God and the sons of the devil. The sons of Abel, who were like him in faith. And the sons of Cain, that were like him in wickedness. 
But even then, the sons of God were tempted by the daughters of men. And when we go outside these doors, we're going to be tempted by the daughters of men. But let us band together in this church, loving the God of heaven and believing Him, that He is and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him, and let us help each other. Let us hold fast. Let us intermarry. Let us look for those that fear God to marry. Let us not be seduced by this world and all those outside these doors. We are in a small company, but it's a whole lot larger than Noah had. Noah only found grace in the eyes of the Lord. I trust this morning we have found grace in the eyes of the Lord as a congregation. That's in the front of your Bibles. Why don't you turn to the back of your Bibles? All the way to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. What blessings, brethren. No wonder John would say in that second verse of 1 John 3, Beloved. What does the beloved mean? God loves us. Beloved. You are loved. The Father hath bestowed incredible love upon us, that we should be called His sons. He came into the orphanage, and when He asked the director, that is His eternal counsel, Show me the best. He was taken to the fallen angels. And he went on down that hall and past that door. Because he cut the angels out. And when he led us out of our room farther down that hall and past the angels, the Bible tells us they desire to look into these things. They can't believe it. That God would overlook them, bypass them, reject them, and confine them to eternal torment and save us. But it gives God the greater glory. He condemns His greater enemies and saves the lower ones. He comes after the poor that He's made rich in faith. Brethren, I'm going to show you some more verses about those angels. That God did it to show those angels how merciful He could be, but He withheld it from them. And we're part of that drama. We're the adopted ones, and we don't deserve to be adopted. But look at Revelation 21 and verse 7. He that overcometh shall inherit all things. And I will be his God, and he shall be my son. What phase of adoption do you think this might be? I will be. It's got to be the final phase of adoption. I hope you can see that. He that overcometh. This is God's encouragement to us to be overcomers in this world. He that overcometh shall inherit all things. How big is your inheritance? You can answer me. It's all things. That's how big your inheritance is. It's all things. It includes God. It includes heaven. It includes the Lord Jesus Christ. It includes an innumerable company of angels. What more do you want? It includes mansions in heaven that He's preparing for us. It includes streets of gold. It includes a crown of righteousness. It includes the tree of life. What more do you want? (laughs) Brethren, you shall inherit all things. You won't inherit those things because you're an overcomer. But you can know that they're yours by overcoming. And He wants you to be an overcomer 
because He's an overcomer and He's given you all the power to overcome. He that overcometh shall inherit all things. And I will be His God and He shall be my Son. There is always, always more that God wants to do to us as His sons if we will just be obedient children. He is always offering to do more. I'm not there yet. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. And touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. And I will be to you a God, and you shall be to me a people. And I will be your father, and you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord. What's the offering there? I will come and be more of a father than I have been to you if you'll leave ungodly religious practices. If you'll not compromise with the traditions and customs of this world. We'll have another stage in our relationship if you'll be faithful to me and not flirt with this world. If you'll not commit adultery and be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. But if you'll come out, I'll be closer to you. He's already our Father before we get to 2 Corinthians 6 because 2 Corinthians 5 said God hath reconciled all things to Himself by Jesus Christ. But there's an added element of fellowship. And brethren, I'm a little off the subject right now of my organization for the sermon, but I just want to lead us through the Bible to see the phases of our adoption. And I've taught this to you before and it's not something new But brethren, ask yourselves, do you really believe it or could you use another sermon or two to really believe it? Because every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. If you, by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ and grace of the Holy Spirit, were to get a vision of being a son of God today and of the hope that is laid up in store for you, it would make all of your life easier to live a holy life, a separated life, a godly life. It'll affect your whole life. It'll affect your marriage. 1 Peter 3, 7. Ye husbands, likewise dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel. I forgot the last part, brethren. And as being heirs together of the grace of life. That's what it says. Husbands. Dwell with your wives according to knowledge. The most important relationship you have with your wife is not your marriage covenant. The most important relationship you have with your wife is that she's a son of God equal to you. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision availeth anything nor uncircumcision. There is neither Greek nor Jew, barbarian. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. No wonder Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9 that we lead about a a sister. How is she your sister if you're a son of God? She's a daughter of God. Come on! You're slow this morning. I wish I had coffee to serve you all without having Starbucks in the foyer. I don't want to look like Rick Warren's church or Joel Osteen's. But come on, be with me this morning. This is not just for me to stand up here and take a few minutes and say we've gone to church. This is for me to communicate something to you and for you to receive it and for all of us together, including the speaker, to be excited about it. It affects your marriage. 
If you read 1 Peter 3, 7, in light of what I'm going to teach you today, you'd remember that every time you mistreat your wife, you are mistreating a son of God. And that is what that verse is teaching. As being heirs together of the grace of life. She's inheriting the same things you are. She's just as important to God as you are. There is no difference. Our standing in Jesus Christ, there is no male or female. There is no husband or wife. We're both sons of God. I'm going to get way off my organization here. Brethren, rejoice! Lord, help us. I don't need to take time to tell you that we need to be adopted. I don't need to tell you what adoption is. You already know what it is. Some child that doesn't have parents has been rejected, lost, discarded, is taken up by the Lord. I don't need to tell you that we need it. You know what happened in the beginning. You know that God created the Garden of Eden, made one commandment for our first parents. They sinned against it. He allowed sin to come into the world because that's what he purposed to use for the display of his glory. There's no surprise. God wasn't wringing his hands in heaven saying, oh no, the devil got in there. Eve doesn't stand a chance. I'll pray for her. The Lord knows how to pray for us. Amen. Do you know the Lord knows how to keep Abimelech from touching Sarah when Sarah very likely was in bed with him so that he could not sin against Sarah? Is the Lord able to do that? Amen. Then why didn't the Lord do that to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? Because that wasn't his purpose in the Garden of Eden. His purpose in the Garden of Eden was to let man have his own way when he was a perfect man with only one commandment in a perfect world. And guess what man chose? He chose the same thing the devil chose. Rebellion. Out of pride because they were not content to be a man and a woman married in the Garden of Eden. They wanted to be as gods and they believed the foolish lie of false religion. We need to be adopted. The Bible tells us the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they be born, speaking lies. We know that about ourselves. We're liars from the beginning. We need to be adopted. We're on our way to hell. The wages of sin is death. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. It is appointed to men once to die, and after that, the judgment. We need to be adopted, but we don't need to go there. Let's go forward. Let's talk about the blessings of adoption. I want to tell you this. I love the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is our propitiation. I love the fact that He is our redemption. He has bought us back from the claims that God's law has against us. I'm glad that He's reconciled us. And I'm glad that He's justified us. You know, the whole world wants to talk about justification as being the most important aspect of Christian theology. That we are acquitted and cleared of all our sins, and that we are given the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Do not let me dull the luster and the glory of that fact. That we stand before the God of heaven in all His holiness and justice, in the purity of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a great blessing. But brethren, adoption is a whole lot higher than justification. To clear us from our sins and to make us righteous does not make us sons. He could clear us from our sins and acquit us so that we're no longer condemned. He could give us the righteousness of Jesus Christ so that we appear as obedient 
creatures in His sight. But He went beyond that. Adoption rises higher than that. He not only acquitted us and cleared us and made us righteous, He chose to adopt us and bring us into a very personal relationship with Him as His sons and His daughters. If He just made us righteous, we'd be no better than the angels. But He's chosen us to be His sons and He didn't choose them. Adoption rises the highest. Let them talk about their justification. We'll talk about adoption, especially this morning. Brethren, we're the sons of God. Those in this room are the sons of God. That's why we love each other. He that loveth him that begat, loveth them also that are begotten of him. That's why we're assembled together today. We've closed the doors against the world. We've turned off our jobs. We've turned off our television, music, reading, everything to come together as the sons of God and to rejoice in God our Father. The blessing of adoption. I mean, I'm thankful for sanctification. It makes us holy objects fit for God's use. But there's holy angels in heaven. I want to be a son of God. Adoption rises higher than sanctification. Sanctification is necessary to adoption. Adoption is not necessary to sanctification. God could have sanctified us and not adopted us. But God couldn't adopt us without sanctifying us. Are you with me? It's beautiful. Everything feeds into the fact that we're the sons of God. Behold! What manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. It wouldn't be the same degree of love if He just justified us, or redeemed us, or reconciled us or propitiated for us, or sanctified us. He adopted us. He's my Father. Did you like that verse I sent you last night? Did you like the chapters you read last night, for those of you that read them? Romans chapter 8. You know what I mean when I say the whole creation's moving forward toward a grand event, don't you? The manifestation of the sons of God. What did Jesus say to Mary Mary Magdalene? In the Garden of Gethsemane, after he rose from the dead, I go to my Father and your Father. I go to my God and your God. You are kidding me. The Lord Jesus Christ said, my Father is your Father. Because Jesus Christ had just paid the price for us to be adopted as the sons of God. And God is the Father of both of us. He's our brother. And therefore, beloved... It doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that. When he shall appear, we shall be like him. Why shall we be like him? Because we are his brothers as the sons of God. For we shall see him as he is. We will finally see the glorified Lord Jesus Christ and will be glorified with a heavenly body similar to his. The blessings of adoption. Adoption rises the highest. Where is this whole adoption found? You know that. Ephesians chapter 1. Let's look at just a couple of references. I am working on an exhaustive, and it's, it's 95% done, an exhaustive chart with all the verses in the Bible that deal with our sonship broken down by five phases. And there is not a chance that we could cover them in the month of July. Because there's a lot in the Bible about our sonship. I'm looking at it right now. And it's a most hopeless sight. But you don't need all of them. You need some of them. 
We need to remind ourselves. And what I want to get to the most is the practical and final phases. Because God is offering a relationship with each of us if we'll take advantage of our sonship. He wants to walk with us every day with a a father with his sons and daughters. Ephesians chapter 1, we want to see the basis of adoption. How did we become the sons of God? What was the motivating factor for it? What's the most influential factor in it? And we can see that in Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Remember, he that overcometh, shall inherit all things. This verse says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. According as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. To be holy is to be sanctified, To be without blame is to be justified and to be in love. He put us in Christ Jesus where He could love us because we were justified and sanctified in Christ. And therefore, He set His love upon us. And we read in this fourth verse that He's chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. And doesn't that match up with another verse I've given you already this morning? Matthew 25, 34, when Jesus will say in the great day of judgment, Come... Ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. It's the will of God. It is entirely the will of God. It is God that chose us in Christ. And it goes on to say in verse 5, Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved. That's why Paul can write in Romans chapter 9, so that it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. He can say, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. When I stand at the orphanage window and look upon all mankind, and there is none that doeth good, no, not one, and they're all filthy and corrupt, and they're all doing abominable, I will choose to love whomever I will choose to love. I will choose to have compassion on whichever one of those wretches I choose to have compassion. And you are saved purely by the will of God to set His love on you, and He could only set His love on you by doing something first, and that was to put you in Jesus Christ before the world began, which makes you lovable. Because you're justified and sanctified in Jesus Christ. And it's to the praise of the glory of His grace. It's not to the praise of the glory of any preacher, of any soul winner, of any missionary society, of any seminary, or of any man in heaven or on earth. Or any angel. It's to the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved. It is not that we accept Him. There's two problems with that. Number one, when He came to the window of the orphanage, we didn't accept Him. 
There was none that understood or sought after God. Psalm 14, Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. If our adoption depended upon us accepting God, there would be no one adopted. He made us accepted in the Beloved. He accepted us because He had put us in Christ Jesus where we became acceptable and by the choice of His will, that's where He put us and that's why He chose us and how He could choose us. And it's all the will of God that all took place, according to this verse, before the world began, before the foundation of the world in Ephesians 1.4. This is the purpose of the plan of adoption. This is a father in heaven wanting children and purposing how he would do it. And when he looked into humanity, there was none that did good. There was none that did righteousness. None sought after him. None understood that he was God. None wanted him to love them. None wanted to love Him. They all sought out their own way. They loved the filth of this world. They loved being the children of the devil. And they followed the prince of the power of the air. It's incredible. It's all His will. That is the foundation, the beginning, the starting point is in the eternal purpose of God. He would never have created this earth if He had not had the purpose of displaying His grace and glory and His wrath and His power on two segments of mankind. He would never have created. The whole purpose of creation is to get humanity on this planet for His ultimate glory. He didn't make any one of us sin. You do it rather willingly, cheerfully, and aggressively, even after much greater knowledge than Adam and Eve had. You mean that's why the earth exists? God just didn't create it and and needed some people to dress it, so He made man? Then they got a little out of hand, so He had to drown them once? Come on. The Bible tells us right here why we exist. Romans chapter 9 tells us why we exist. Proverbs 16.4, Revelation 4.11 that we sing, The Lord hath made all things for Himself, yea, for His own pleasure He's made them. This is what starts sonship right here. But there's that word predestinated in verse 5. And when you predestinate something, you set its destiny beforehand. That's what predestinate means. It's a verb. It's describing, determining, and setting, and guaranteeing the destination of something beforehand. God set our destination beforehand, brethren. That is an incredible message I have for you. I don't have something to tell you that you need to do. I was reading some works. By the church of Christ last evening. How discouraging. If you die with any sins, brethren, it's all over. It's all over. You need to live a life of righteousness. You need to get baptized to wash away your sins. And that baptism isn't sufficient to keep them washed away. You better keep them washed away by living righteously and confessing every sin and don't die with any unconfessed. I'm here to tell you he's already guaranteed your destination. What we want to do is lay hold of that destination and know that we're the sons of God and live like it. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. There are so many verses that we could go to that tell us that the purpose and grace of God was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. 
that God promised eternal life to us before the world began? Many verses that we could go to. We'll only use a few. Jesus Christ was foreordained before the foundation of the world to come and pay the legal price for us. But we're not to the legal phase yet. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 29. If you read this chapter last night, you know the whole chapter is about the sons of God. Verse 29, for whom he did foreknow. So many people out there that say they believe in predestination say, I believe in predestination. Yes, I do. God looked down upon the human family and he foresaw who would obey him. He foresaw who would believe on him and he predestinated them. Well, now that doesn't match with with Psalm 14 that we've read, does it? Because that verse tells us God did look down. But when God looked down, He didn't find any obeying or believing. He found them all going off together and being filthy, corrupt, and abominable. And then these verses in Ephesians 1 have told us that it's not by our believing, it's not by the exercise of our will, it's by His will and the praise of the glory of His grace and He hath made us accepted, not us accepting Him. Here's predestination. We've read it once in one place. Here's our second witness. For whom He did foreknow. It doesn't say for what He did foreknow, because He didn't foreknow us obeying Him. He just foreknew us as sinners and chose to set His love on us. Amen. For whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son. Why? That he might be the firstborn among many brethren. God raised up Jesus of Nazareth to be greater than the devil. The ultimate shame to God's ultimate enemy. And he didn't want the Lord Jesus Christ to be alone. He sent the Lord Jesus Christ to die for us so that Jesus Christ would have a whole lot of brethren. We are all the family of God, and Jesus Christ is our brother. We are so much his brother that the Bible says we are joint heirs with Christ. Amen. When the will, when the will, by will I mean his last testament, by will I mean his covenant and last testament is read in heaven, it will say, everything I am, everything I have is Jesus Christ and his brethren. Because we're joint heirs with Christ. Amen. And there won't be any squabbling about it in heaven. We're just all going to rejoice and we won't run out. You know, our Father's inheritance isn't going to run out after ten years of wild spending. And we're going to spend wildly. And I don't mean money in a gumball machine. I mean in purified, perfected, spiritual, holy praise forevermore and enjoying every perfection of God and Jesus Christ that we're capable of handling. For whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He did predestinate, them He also called. And whom He called, them He also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? 
all of verses 29 and 30 was the work of God, and you are not in there. Verses 29 and 30 are not depending upon you, because then verse 31 wouldn't be very sure, would it? But it's very sure. What shall we then say to these things? I might blow it and not make it? No, it says, if God be for us, who can be against us? And God is for us. How do you know God's for you? Simple. First verse of the chapter. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Are you in Christ Jesus or not? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and the Savior from sin, the Lord of the universe, and obey Him in baptism, and you are in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3, 26 and 27. When you do that, sincerely in faith. Right. And it goes on to say in Romans 8, 1, Who walketh not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Do you make choices dependent on the Spirit of God, or do you make all your choices dependent on your body and its fleshly lusts? There is no fine line. You can know you're a son of God. If God be for us, who can be against us? And what kind of people did God choose to adopt? James 2.5 says, God hath chosen the poor of this world rich in faith. 1 Corinthians 1.26 tells us He chose the ugly ones. Is that easy? Is there an ugly one here? But you see your calling, brethren, how that not many mighty, not many noble, not many wise, not many rich are called. But God hath called the base things of this world. God hath chosen the base things of this world that He might bring to nothing those who think they're something, because He'll make us something from nothing by His glorious grace. Brother, it's glorious. The world doesn't know us because it didn't know Him. When the Son of God Himself stood on earth, they didn't know Him and they don't know us because we're the sons of God. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 2.15, please remember this, 2.14 is the verse we use often, the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. God makes a difference between the natural man and the spiritual man. The spiritual man's able to receive and figure out, believe and accept and rejoice in all the things the Spirit of God teaches. But the world can't figure out the spiritual man. The spiritual man can do the figuring out, but the world can't figure out the spiritual man. It's the same thought and the same point that John made when he said, Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. I had a good time in prison this past Monday, telling this story that you're hearing right now. I may have told you this last... I I tell stories so many times during the week, by email, phone, or in person. I can't remember when I've told it, who I've told it to sometimes. But you know, the Lord Jesus Christ was the Creator of heaven and earth. He's the Lord of glory. And He was tied to a pole, and a Roman centurion or a Roman soldier put on a leather glove, blindfolded the Lord Jesus Christ, and smashed Him in the face. And said, if you're a prophet... Why don't you tell us, why don't you prophesy who just hit you in the face? Do you know what 1 Corinthians 2.8 tells me? 
The princes of this world do not understand the mysteries or the secrets that God has revealed to us. For had they known Him, for had they known them, the things God has revealed to us, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. That man would have been on his knees at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ, begging for mercy. They didn't know Him, and they don't know us. But brethren, that does not take away... Did that take away from His sonship at all? Does it take away from ours at all? No. Do not measure yourself by this word, world. Measure yourself by this word. Do not measure yourself by the opinions of the daughters or the sons of men. Measure yourself by the opinions of the Son of God and His apostles. We are greatly blessed. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. For had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. I spent a good amount of time last Sunday telling you that if this world understood who is meeting in here right now, they would have surrounded this building. All the photographers and interviewers and news system, newsmen would be outside that door wanting to interview a son of God when he came out and they'd do it most respectfully. They'd be washing our cars right now while we were meeting. They'd be trying to put a microphone up against the wall to see if they could possibly hear what the sons of God are talking about. For had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Pilate thought, every time he came out and said, Behold, I find no fault in him. Pilate knew that it was for envy the Jews that delivered him, and Jesus didn't really deserve to die just as an ordinary man. But if Pilate had known he was the Lord of glory, Pilate would have called his centurions and sent an ambassador off to Caesarea to bring the rest of the troops, and he'd have leveled that city of Jerusalem to defend the Lord Jesus Christ. And he'd have gone down first in front of them all to protect the Lord Jesus Christ. But they did not know the Lord of glory, and they don't know us. And some of those daughters of men may talk to you sometimes as if you are nothing in their sight, but that doesn't matter. You're a son of God in His sight. And you're a son of God in our sight. And it's our job to stick together and to love one another. Do not come into this church and make your comfortable way to your little hole in a pew where you sit and keep it warm. Come into this church and look out other sons of God and encourage them. Love them. We have got to stick together against this world that does not know us. Legislation continues to be passed in other parts of the world against hate crimes where they will eventually come after us in this country and try to keep us from preaching the Word of God or teaching it in our homes or practicing the Bible. It could happen. But whether it happens or not, there's an onslaught against us anyway of carnal seduction against the people of God. Let us help one another stand fast. 1 Peter 1.12 I said that the God of heaven, when he entered the orphanage, when he looked to see what there was that he could adopt in his eternal counsel, he could have adopted angels. But he didn't. Here's what it says about that. Speaking of the prophets of God, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us, they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into, 
the angels desire to look into the gospel. The gospel is good news, and there is no good news for them. The fallen angels have no good news. Now, they have news. The news is that they are reserved in everlasting chains for eternal torment. 2 Peter 2, 4, Jude 1, 6. And I'll not turn you there because you should know that about the fallen angels. But come back to Ephesians chapter 3 and see another verse. This is the greatest message that's ever been preached. I mean, this part of the gospel. Adoption as the sons of God. Can you imagine the Apostle Paul in a synagogue where the Gentiles had to sit by themselves because they weren't of the Jewish fathers? And the Apostle Paul explaining to Gentiles that they were equal to the Jews, citizens of the household, the what? Of the household of God. They are members of the family of God because Jesus Christ had broken down any middle walls of partition between Jew and Gentile, and they were all the sons of God. What a message he had to preach. And so do we today. And what a one to hear and to believe. Ephesians chapter 3, follow with me. Verse 8. Unto me, Paul speaking, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ. To the intent, this mystery, kept secret from the beginning of the world, has a purpose. And here it is. To the intent, that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose which He purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of Him. Verse 10 is what I want to focus on. It tells us that this fellowship of the mystery of God uniting Jews and Gentiles into one body that He purchased and saved through Jesus Christ That mystery, that secret, eternal purpose of God that had existed from the beginning has an intent that the angels would be overwhelmed by God's love for His church. That is verse 10. To the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places, those are the angels, might be known the manifold wisdom of God. And I left out the words, by the church. It's not that we're going to teach angels. It's that God, God, we are the object of God's love. We are the object of God's wisdom. And it's by the church that God is teaching the angels about His incredibly magnificent grace. I don't have time to stay longer in Ephesians 3.10. I hope you understand how that little prepositional phrase, by the church, is in there. It's describing how God is showing the angels of heaven His manifold wisdom and the exceeding riches of His grace by saving us and not saving them. He went past them. He raised up one of us to defeat them. 
And all of it according to His eternal purpose. We read that enough times in that one sentence. Because it says it was according to the eternal purpose which He purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. The point of all this, the first phase of adoption, the eternal phase, is God's choice and God's will to adopt us. Amen. So there's always been a division in the human race and He made the division because He is the potter and we are the clay. Amen. Come. Ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. God is just and holy. He cannot adopt a wicked or an unholy object. So He made us just and holy through Jesus Christ. Can we cover the legal phase in two minutes? Can we cover it this way? For God so loved the world of His elect that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Belief there is not a condition to obtain the love of God nor the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It's a descriptive phrase of those that God sent His love upon and for whom Christ died. So we can say John 3.16 is one of our verses because we understand it in the light of 1 John 3.1. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world... Now follow me please. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew Him not. Now don't make that world the same world as John 3.16, or you've got some gross, terrible contradictions. There's a distinction between the world and us in 1 John 3.1. And there's a distinction in John 3.16, and it's to be understood. Jesus was speaking with Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, and pointing out to him that the love of God did not extend just to the Jewish nation, but to all the children of God that were scattered abroad. John eleven forty nine through 52, John ten sixteen, And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Do you know how you became a son of God? God took His only begotten and beloved Son and bruised Him punished Him and killed Him and poured all the judgment, wrath, and fury upon Him for your sins and mine. What an incredible transaction. The manifold wisdom of God. How could you even... Imagine God in His eternal counsel, which we can't truly imagine. But imagine the best we can. God in His eternal counsel. How do I show the universe the incredible greatness of my grace? What can I do? And what he came up with are angels, men, save the men by raising up one of them that is my beloved son that I have a relationship with that is perfect and kill him for them and do none of that for the angels to show my wrath and my power at the same time. The angels desire to look into it.
God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. To redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. That's the legal price being paid for us. Every man in this world has to go to court, sign all the proper legal documents in order to become an adoptive father. God went to the courts of his own counsel and his own justice and paid the price necessary to adopt sinners. And that required the death of his own son. What manifold wisdom and power of God in designing such a way to save you and to save me. So much more could be said. Hebrews chapter 2 goes on and on about the Lord Jesus Christ not taking on himself the nature of angels, but taking on himself the nature of Abraham's seed. For it behooved him to be made... Help me finish the verse. It behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. Therefore, in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. He's able to help us. What glory. He took on in the nature of Abraham and his seed, not the nature of angels. There are servants. What manifold wisdom of God to manifest his glory. And I'm sorry you don't have a pastor that can preach it to you. Isaiah 53. Because I'd like to sit and hear him myself. The purchase of adoption. God had to pay a price, and it wasn't to the devil. Jesus didn't redeem us from the devil. Jesus redeemed us from the just and righteous claims of God's law against us. Isaiah 53 and verse 10. Look at these verses. And and consider in them the sons of God. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. That is God the Father bruising, bruising his son Jesus Christ. It was the pleasure of God to do this. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Jesus Christ is going to be absolutely, totally, and finally victorious in this great transaction of satisfying the justice of God for his seed. Who's the seed? You and I are the seed. We're the sons of God, given to Jesus Christ to redeem. When thou, God the Father, shalt make his soul, that is Jesus Christ, an offering for sin, he, God the Father, shall see his, God the Son's seed, he shall prolong, or, or his own seed, the sons of God, he shall prolong his, Jesus Christ's days. He didn't find corruption in the grave. He was raised from the grave to live forevermore. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Jesus Christ would inherit all things to be able to give them to you and to me. And that's the legal phase of salvation. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul into death, 
And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ did for us, that we, through his grace, might be made heirs of eternal life. Titus 3, 7. Having purposed to make us his children, having purchased us to be his children, he then prepared us to be his children by giving us a nature. What were we by nature? Hateful and hating one another. Jesus Christ put us in the position as sons. He put us in the position as sons in the sight of God. We were his sons because the price was paid for our sins. But we still had a nature, though in God's mind, from his plan, though in God's legal considerations, from Christ's death, we were the sons of God, yet we still had a rebellious, defiant nature. We were still kicking against the pricks. That's, that's after regeneration in Paul's life. We were rebels. We had our course in this world. We were willingly following the devil. We were happy being the devil's children. So we changed our nature, and that's when we were born again. Look at John chapter 3, very quickly. John chapter 3. This is the vital phase of our adoption where God changed our nature that we would be acceptable children to Him. We were still hateful and sinful in our practice Though legally considered, we were holy and righteous. God had to change our nature. We were still in love with Satan. We loved the world. Heaven couldn't have such rebels. He had to change our nature. And you know, every father that adopts, everyone that adopts, always wonders, what kind of a gene pool is he getting himself into? Because what's going to come out in that son when he gets older? Is he going to defy me? Is he going to hate me? And there God had purposed to adopt. He had sent Jesus Christ to pay the price. And that's the condition we were in. We were still the children of the devil. We were acting just like the children of wrath, as we read earlier this morning in Ephesians 2, 1 through 7. So God changed our nature. And here it is described. John 3, 3. Jesus answered and said to Nicodemus, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless I give you a new nature, you won't even appreciate or know what I'm doing for you. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus, every one in my religion, to be my sons, have to be born again from above. Your first birth is just a birth of flesh. And if you were to go through it ten times, it would still be a birth of flesh. Because that which is born of the flesh is flesh. You need to be born of the Spirit of God, and that result is a spiritual man. 1 Corinthians 2.15, but he which is spiritual. We have a spiritual new man inside us. 
I've got to change their natures so that they love me, they're fit for heaven, and they'll love each other. Or what a terrible place heaven would be, though our sins were paid for and God wanted us as His children. We would still have that wicked nature that loved the world. We wouldn't even want to be there. So He changed our nature. And there's so many verses that that, that describe this in the Word of God. It's called regeneration. In that He generates us again. Re, meaning again. Generate means to give birth to. He gave birth to us again, which is called being born again right here. It's called a begetting. It's called being begotten. It's called being created. It's called the first resurrection. Because it's being raised from death. It's called quickening in giving life to something that was dead. By nature, we're just like the children of wrath. We're dead toward the things of God. No interest, no love, no affection, only rebellion and hatred and love for the world. So God changes that by making us alive spiritually. It doesn't mean that we're intellectually impaired. It doesn't mean that we're physically impaired when we're dead in trespasses and sins. It means that our affections are impaired. And not only are they impaired, they're dead toward God. They're only alive toward sin. Intellectually, a man doesn't change before or after regeneration. He still has the same IQ. But all of a sudden, the affections of his heart are totally different. Instead of hating God, he loves God. Instead of thinking the gospel is foolishness, he thinks the gospel is the wisdom and power of God. Instead of hating the people of God as a bunch of deluded, blind, simple morons, he loves them as fellow sons of God. And he wants to be with them. And he's content to spend the rest of his life with them. Moses was so convicted by his new man that he was willing to forsake all the riches of Egypt and being Pharaoh's own son to suffer affliction and reproach with the people of God. He gave up all the pleasures of sin for a season to suffer with the people of God. Now I wonder what made that change. What man in his right mind would do that, we say. What man in his right mind would do that? The only right mind you'd ever have is one that's been born again that would do that. It's a man not in his right mind that would stay in Egypt. God changed our nature so that Jesus could say to some Jews in John chapter 8, Ye are of your father, the devil. Because they had not been changed. He that is of God, a few verses later, heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not, because ye are not of God. And so he changes our nature And there's so many verses that speak to that. Look at John 1, verses 12 and 13. John 1, 12 and 13. But as many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name, which were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. How is a man born of God? Now you take those two verses together. Don't take John 1, 12. Memorize it. And forget that it's only half a sentence, like most of the religious world does, that even knows that there is a Gospel of John. They take verse 12. But if you read the whole thing, it tells us what came first. It's being born of God, not of the will of the flesh. And before you're born again, that's the only will you've got. Because that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So if you're going to give me a man that is not born again, then he's still in the flesh. If he's in the flesh, then the only will he's exercising is the will of the flesh. And do you know what preachers do today? 
All you sinners that are in the flesh that want to be born again, come forward and exercise your will of the flesh in order to be born again. Which were born not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. Infant sprinklings taken out with that little phrase right there. Because if some other man is taking you by their will to do something for you at some baptismal font in some Catholic church or one of her daughters, that is not how you're born again. That's called baptismal regeneration in theological terminology. But of God. Nor is it of blood. It doesn't have a thing to do with the fact whether you are a Jew or a Gentile. It's not of blood. It's not the will of the flesh. It's not the will of man. It's God's will. And His will is exercised in giving the new birth the same way the wind blows. You don't know where it's coming from and you don't know where it's going. All you know is there's some wind. And when you see a man born again and his life is changed, you don't know where it came from. You don't know how God did it, when God did it. All you see are the effects of it. Then we can back up to verse 12. When we understand the whole sentence, but as many as received Him. Well, why is it worded that way? Why do we have the receiving first? Because of verse 11. He came unto His own, the Jewish nation, and His own received Him not. He's describing the fact that when Jesus Christ and John the Baptist came, they were not received by the Jews at large. And so verse 12 opens up by putting that responsibility and that disobedience in, in place first. But as many as received him, because he's just used that verb received in verse 11, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. So we have two past tense verbs. We have received him, and we have, we have to them gave he. Two past tense verbs. Well, now, which one came first? We know that from the rest of the Bible, but can we prove that from this passage? But as many as received him, past tense, to them gave he power, past tense, to become the sons of God. Even to them that believed on his name. Well, then we would have three past tenses. But it doesn't say that, does it? Even to them that believe on His name. Uh Uh-oh! Now what do we have? A present tense. In English, does it matter the order of the verbs or does it matter what tense they are? Who cares what order verbs come in? What determines priority in time is the tense of the verb. Isn't that what tense means? To them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name. He shifts to the present audience of those that He's writing to. If you believe, present tense, on the Lord Jesus Christ and receive Him as the Son of God, that He gave, past tense, you the power to become the sons of God, and you were born, past tense, those of you that are believing, present tense, were born, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And there we have it in two verses. And we have it in so many other places. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. How much cooperation does a dead man have with the man who raises him from the dead? None at all. You might cooperate with a doctor when you're sick, but you don't cooperate when you're dead. 
What a difference it makes. And brother, that's how we're adopted. And I wanted to get further this morning, but we're going to get further tonight. We're going to leap straight into the practical phase where God is offering us a closer relationship of fellowship and the effect that this doctrine can have on your practical life if you were to truly have this hope in you. And I also want to show you tonight what's in store for us and that the whole universe is moving forward toward your acceptance and being granted of quite an award and reward. And it's the eternal inheritance before the whole universe. And the angels are going to be overwhelmed to see that God has chosen some of us to be his sons and daughters and be given an eternal inheritance of God and heaven and all that it contains. May the Lord bless us to walk out that door into the presence of the daughters of men. And remain true to our Father. Who has adopted us and delivered us from the wrath to come and promised us an eternal inheritance. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. Number 415 is appropriate for us. And we'll sing that in conclusion. Number 415, Lord, I'm unworthy to be called your son.